0: From the book of 2 Corinthians, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good morning. Well, we've got two great New Testament lessons this morning, the story of the prodigal son which pretty much preaches itself as you just heard. So I think I'm going to pray us out, and we're just going to move straight into the Nicene Creed and be done for today. Uh, I am kidding. The, but that, it is such a beautiful story. And the second text that we have is Paul's, uh, really his makeup letter to the church in Corinth, which we're going to get a little further into in a bit. And when you, if you heard what we just read, it's hard not to see how these two stories are connected. After all, they're both about relationships that were uh, severed, relationships that were estranged, and then... Uh, they were reforged and made whole. And it's, it's really the story of our lives what we're hearing in this idea of reconciliation. It's a story that's as big as God's entire relationship with us and as small as you and your spouse getting over a spat at the breakfast table. Our lives are lives that constantly engage in this, in this pattern and desire for reconciliation. And as Christians, it's, a, it's just an essential story of who we are, of what makes us who we are. But the Lord knows it's not something that we always do very well, is it? There's this other parable that Jesus teaches. And he talks about this. You might, have, you might remember this one. There's a servant, right, who owes tons, an infinite amount, nearly, to a king. An, an impossible amount of debt. And the king forgives the servant. And so, like all of us, what does the servant go do to, to the other person who owes him some money? Forgives him, right? No, he doesn't do that. The text says that he actually chokes him sends him off to jail, right, and gets jailed himself. Why is that? Why does God tell us this story? Well, because he knows. We're not great at reconciliation. It's not something that, we're, that, we're, that we do very well, but it's absolutely something that we need to do. It's a walk that we need to live into. It's absolutely the type of people that we need to be, and here's why. When we present the gospel story, It's really our demonstrations of forgiveness, our acts of reconciliation that are the means by which the gospel message is not only shared, but believed. So, I've got two points for us this morning about reconciliation. Point number one, our reconciliation with God. And point number two, our work as ambassadors of reconciliation. So our reconciliation with God and our work as ambassadors of reconciliation. I want to back up for a minute. There's something that the church has done really well over the past couple hundred years. We have done a great job as a church saturating our culture with this idea that God loves us. Even as our society kind of breaks free from its moorings, most people that you meet would say, even if they're not Christian, that some being, some divine thing, the universe, as Father Rodriguez mentioned a few weeks ago, loves them. That's a distinctly Christian message. Did you know that? It's distinctly Christian. The ancients believed that their gods were these capricious, arbitrary manifestations of things like hurricanes or earthquakes or famine or right things that could take you out in an instant. They didn't love you, you had to appease them. So we've done a good job as a Christian church giving the message that God loves people even as, they, even as they cease to be Christian, even if it loses its element of Christianity. Unfortunately, that's only part of the message. You know, I love my boys. I feel like I have to preface that by, before I say something about them that's maybe not the best, but I love my boys. Uh, my youngest son, he's, he is infamous for forgetting what you told him like a minute after, maybe both of them are, forgetting what you told him a minute after you do it. So for example, we'll tell him, hey buddy, go clean the playroom. And he'll hear, playroom, got it, I'm in there. And he's in there, right, putting everything together and playing with it. Like, you, you missed the second half of the message. You missed the whole point of it. Okay, all right, let's, let's try again. But that's kind of what we've done with our message of God loves us. We say God loves you, but we forget the essential part of needing to be reconciled with God to be forgiven, to be in a relationship, God, by which we experience the benefits of that love. Walking in Him in relationship to receive that love. That's where it comes from. That's the vehicle for the love that God would would give us. And when we believe anything else, that we don't need to approach God or be in a relationship with Him, that we can just kind of bask in the warm rays of um, His affection, that's a monstrous uh, presumption. The Bible's pretty clear on this. Every person needs to be reconciled with God. Comes one way, through Christ's death on the cross. That's it. And if you're already a Christian, right, you might hear this message of reconciliation, be like, oh, that's all well and good. I've been forgiven. And it's true. We have been reconciled with God. But I want you to notice something about our text in Corinthians. Who's Paul writing to? Well, he's writing to the church presumably to people who are already Christians. So, what he, could he possibly mean by this message? Be reconciled to God. Some time ago during this very week of Lent, I think it was the third or fourth week of Lent, and I still remember this. Um, I was having a heated discussion, and it took place after church, which is typically where all of your heated discussions place, take right, right? Either on the way to church or after church. That's where you like to get your arguments out. And um, And the person that I was having this discussion with, you know, it was was a little bit of a back and forth, but I had this moment. I had this moment where the scales fell from my eyes, and all the illusions that I had built up of my personal piety, of my innate goodness, of what a great guy I was, were stripped from me. And it rocked me. Have you ever been there? You've seen yourself in a mirror and you don't like what you see? I mean, it's funny it happens during Lent because in Lent we're supposed to have the season of introspection, right? Of finding all of those things. And so often in Lent, I think I'm doing a pretty good job of trying to root out those parts of me that God needs to work on, right? I'm like picking up stones and looking underneath to see what I need to work on. And this particular year, I wasn't finding anything. Pretty good guy. A-okay. Checks out, right? But then I pick up the one rock and everything scurries out and flies all around, and he realized, well, wait a minute. There's still, some, there's, still some, there's still a mess here. And so as an act of reconciliation, I reconciled with the person that I was in a debate with, but where else do I go with that? Because sometimes we have dug such a hole for ourselves that being forgiven by a person isn't enough, is it? We need to be given, forgiven by somebody else. Sometimes we acknowledge so much of a mess of ourselves that we can only take that before the Lord and offer it unto Him. You know, every, every sin that we have has two dimensions, doesn't it, right? It's got, it's got the horizontal dimension. I got this wrong, by the way, in the 8 o'clock. This is not vertical. This is horizontal. I figured it out. But every sin that we have, every sin that we have has a horizontal dimension, right? The way that we either hurt someone else or hurt ourselves or both. But it's also got a vertical dimension, doesn't it? Our offense against the Lord, our sins against Him, the person that we need to bring them to. Now, every single one of us as Christians needs to live out this life of reconciliation and going before the Lord. We heard in our prodigal son his response to us, right? I mean, every single one of us has been given gifts by God. And you might think, well, I wasn't born with as much as the person next to me or you know, with, as many, with as much wealth or as much gifts, and I had all of these issues with my life. But you still have breath in your lungs, don't you? You were still formed and created by God. You were still given gifts no matter what they were. And yet, each one of us in this room also has had the role of the prodigal son. We've taken those gifts, and we've squandered them. We've lived only for ourselves. We've decided to take the gifts that God has used us and put, put them into use for us and not for him. Fled from him. And God willing, have hit rock bottom and had nowhere else to turn but go back to Him, right? And when you came back to God, and again, many of us have lived through this. Many of us have lived through this several times, this cycle. When you came back to God, how did He receive you? Did He scold you, right? Did He, did he bring you on as one of His hired servants? No. He runs out and embraces you and pulls you back to Himself. Be reconciled to God. That's the first part of our message. And we have this great benefit here at church, by the way, on Sunday. Every Sunday, and we're going to have that in a few minutes, we're going to have the opportunity to repent. This is the ongoing reconciliation that we have. I mean, our relationship with God is is just that. It's a relationship. And we bring that before the Lord, and we have the opportunity for reconciliation with Him. We bring our stuff before the Lord, and we have the opportunity to repent and to receive absolution, to be welcomed back to Him. And what's amazing about this moment is if you actually lean into the reconciliation that you have with God, if you lean into that moment of having all of the grime and dirt and grit that has been accumulated onto you by your daily living, washed off by the blood of Christ, you are in a very real sense, in a true sense, a new creation. No longer do you look at yourself as that, you know, terrible person who has that secret shame that you walk with your shoulders bowed over, your back bent. You get to walk straight up knowing that God can handle what you bring Him and that you've been forgiven in Him. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I was speaking with um, Father Rodriguez about this very text earlier this week, and he reminded me of the story of Louis Zamperini. And you've heard this before, right? The story of Louis Zamperini from Unbroken. Well, Zamperini was an Olympic runner, and he had turned a World War II airman, and his plane was shot down, he was in open waters for, I think, 47 days. The Japanese captured him, put him in a prison camp, and he was beaten, starved, tortured. I mean, he absolutely went through the ringer, And it messed him up for a long time, which, which, you can, which is understandable, right? You imagine that it would. He, had, he's, he became an angry, bitter, resentful drunk who drove his friends and family away. I mean, think about who we become when when these things happen to us. Well, one day, Zamparini decided to go hear an evangelist named Billy Graham. You might recognize the name. And Zamparini heard the message of the gospel. And what's incredible, after years of torment done to him, after years of him then doing the same to others, his biographer wrote of that moment that he heard the gospel message. His biographer wrote, Zamparini was no longer the worthless, broken, forsaken man that his tormentors had striven to make of him. In a single silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation, and helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he believed he was a new creation. Same words Paul uses, new creation forgiven in God. And then Zamperini did something unbelievable. You see, in an interview he had given before, he had told the interview, he said, you know, I will die before I set foot on Japanese soil again. I will die first. But after experiencing the gospel, the grace and love of Christ, he decided to fly over and visit the prisons of the very Japanese criminals that had been his prison guards, and he forgave them. And there was one in particular that they called the bird that was unbelievably harsh and cruel. And Zamperini even sought to reconcile with him going so far as to write him a letter of forgiveness. That's unreal. Why would you do that? Why not just cut ties? Why not just bury it? Well, because when we know When God gives us insight into the depths of our own depravity, what God has forgiven us from, the burden that he lifts from us, the washing away of our sins, and we are made whole, we become new creation. Which brings us to our second point, ambassadors of reconciliation. When I was a a youth director, there was a simple phrase that we would often use in youth group, and you've probably heard it before. It fits right on a bumper sticker. Hurt people hurt people. You've seen that before, right? You've heard that before. Hurt people hurt people. And if that's true, then what do you think forgiven people do? We forgive. If you're a Christian who's been reconciled to God, we walk in that reconciliation with others and you begin to see people differently. If you know the depths of your own sin, you see people differently. You can acknowledge their worth and value and the fact that Christ died for them just as He died for you. No longer is your neighbor, for example, just some guy whose dog constantly barks throughout the day, or some guy who has very loud parties at 2 a.m. on Saturday mornings right before you have to get up and preach. Don't know how he knows my schedule. Or, you know, he's not just some guy, right? Et cetera, et, cetera, et cetera. He becomes a very person that God died for, a very person that God desires for Himself, a very person who becomes your brother or sister in Christ. That's what Paul means, by the way, when he writes in our text from this morning. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't look at them from a worldly point of view. You know, one of our bad habits of people is we, we depersonalize them, right? Or we dehumanize it. We, we tend to look at people around us naturally either as um, obstacles to our goals or objects for our use. Not the fullness of the person that God has created them to be. But when Paul writes that from now on, when we're new creations, we don't regard people according to the flesh anymore. What he's saying is, we don't look at somebody, we aren't to as Christians determine someone's worth based on their status, wealth, Likeability, competence, affiliations, or a whole host of other standards. Instead, we see them as one for whom Christ died, and one that Christ desires to be reconciled with. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which If you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. There is a weight of worth to souls that Paul and Zamperini and C.S. Lewis understood. The worth of the cashier at Publix or the woman behind the counter at the dry cleaner and the person sitting in your chair. And as ambassadors for Christ, we're to bring God's message of reconciliation. And sometimes to do that, we have to strive to be reconciled to others ourselves. Who, after all, are we to withhold forgiveness when we have been forgiven so much? I mean, even Paul, I told you that this was his makeup letter to the church at Corinth, right? Paul's relationship with, Corinth was, with the church at Corinth was terrible. This is his third letter to them. The second one is lost, and in it, apparently, he just gave them what for, and he's apologizing a little bit, or at least softening his tone in this one. But the church at Corinth was an absolute mess. Paul came, and he preached, and he loved on them, and then when he left, they all split into different factions and started attacking each other and attacking him when he wasn't there. typically happens, Right? The wealthy in that church would would gather together for the Eucharist, and the poor would be excluded from it to the point where the wealthy got drunk at the Eucharist, and the poor weren't given a drop. Some people in the church were taking those others to court in order to gain some advantage of them. There was one person who had committed a heinous sin and was cast out from the church, but had reconciled and, and sought forgiveness and was trying to come back in. I mean, you want to talk about a mess, Right? There was plenty of opportunity for reconciliation in Corinth. There was a need for reconciliation all over the place. But you know what? There always is, isn't there? I can't think of a week that goes by that I don't need to live out this message of reconciliation with others. There's not somebody I haven't wronged, somebody I need to apologize to, or somebody that I need to forgive. Am I alone in that? You know, I'm going to make up a statistic because I love to do that. I'll throw it out and you just believe me. Don't look it up. But I would bet, I would bet for families, like 70% of the fights that you get into are going to be on your way to church or on your way home from church on a Sunday. It's unreal, right? I mean, there's always an opportunity for, if you haven't had one yet, just get it out of your system on the way home and then reconcile. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. But my point is, there's always going to be a need for us to live into this reconciliation, to be ambassadors of reconciliation. It doesn't make it easy, right? In fact, I would say in the Christian life, there's nothing harder that God calls us to do than to forgive others. Evangelism is easier. Speaking about Jesus Christ to a total stranger, at least in my life, can be easier than offering forgiveness or reconciliation, especially if I don't know that it's going to be forgiven in turn, right? There's this um, training called Peacemaker Ministries. Anybody heard of this, Ken Sandy Peacemakers? I asked an adult forum and no one raised their hand. All right, well, I do. All right. And just so you know, I'm certified in it, so you better watch out. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, But in in this part of this process of peacemaking, of this reconciliation, they have this this, um, project that you do. They go through these seven A's of confession. If you want to give like a full confession to somebody— I'm not going to go through all of them because, for the sake of time, but it's like, you know, address everybody. Um, don't say if, butter, maybe. Accept the consequences of your actions. Alter your behaviors. All these things, right? And it's funny, as you coach people through this, you find that they can do the first six of them perfectly well. Take full ownership. But there's one they can never do. It's the final one. Final step. Step seven. Ask for forgiveness and leave it out there will you forgive me, then stop talking. People won't do it. They're terrified of it. Why is that? Because you're in control through the first six of the process. You're steering the conversation, but at the end, you are completely vulnerable to the response of the other person. And it's terrifying for most people. Reconciliation is hard. because there's a lot of things that are involved in it. You have to initiate the process. You have to be willing to yield the high ground, the high moral ground that might rightfully be yours. You have to put to death your pride. You have to lower your defenses and possibly take a hit for the sake of the other person. Who wants to do that? Who wants to do that daily? It's tough. But then when you read the message of the gospel, you know, Christ's death on the cross was not just the means of our reconciliation. It's also an example for us. Who more than all others yielded the high ground? He took on flesh and became a man. He was made vulnerable and put to death for our sake. And we're called to do the same. That's our job in bringing God's message of reconciliation to others. Both preach the gospel of what he's done for us and live it out. So let me encourage you this morning as you look at all of the opportunities you're going to have this week for reconciliation. I mean, if you pray for it, God will present it, I promise. Let me encourage you to do the hard work of seeking reconciliation this week, that you do the hard work of forgiving others just as Christ and God forgave you. If you had a disagreement and you were only 5% at fault, take full ownership of your 5%. Humble yourself as Christ humbled himself on the cross. And if possible, as Paul writes in Romans, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, even when we were strangers to you, even when we were far off, even when we took the gifts that you have given us and ran, still you died for us while we were yet sinners. Still you call us to yourself. Still you desire us to be in relationship with you, God, I pray that we would be stirred to take advantage of what you have freely offered to us, that we would walk in the grace that you have given us, and that you would give us the courage necessary and the humility necessary to then walk and bring your message of reconciliation to others, both by the gospel that we proclaim and the lives that we live as examples. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.